0: theme song to book lunches. And um, so we're at a book lunch today. Welcome. Um, We're going to conclude, let let you know the itinerary um, here. I'm kind of a one-man band here, so I have to move things around, you know. This is kind of of fun, actually. You know, I sort of Kind of dealing, get this out of the way. Um. There. Um, As I was saying, it's a little bit of a one man band. So I have to move things around. It's not. I've only been doing this for a short time. I mean, this kind of idea, and. um, Um. but it brings it before we get to Irving Sainer's book and, and conclude our series on nature of love, I'd like to make a few extemporaneous, spontaneous comments about what I'm just doing now. So this is a little bit in the nature of life. Um life can be uh, sometimes makeshift and as actually I actually got I actually this brings to mind in a future episode, I'm going to discuss um, uh, postmodernism. And in particular, Charles Jenks, the late, great Charles Jenks, the architect, his, he did a lot of the best work, I feel, on the subject of postmodernism. He was an architect and he wrote so many books on architecture. Um, Charles Jenks was his name. And um, the only reason why I mention this is he wrote a book called Ad Hocism in the early 70s. And he tried to put forth this kind of very sort of, sort of fun spirited, but also serious theory, you know, of to be an ad hoc world, ad hoc person, modular, you know, where things are kind of move around and they're makeshift. And it's, it's it's a, it's a, a, you know, it's a, it's a way of being in a style that um, is maybe appropriate for certain contexts, not all, of course. And so I've seen a little bit of that here. And this is Irving Singer the man here in this video. And so I'm gonna, uh, we're gonna conclude uh, his book, which I'm sad a little bit to leave his book behind. I'm gonna miss him and miss his book. I mean, one of the interesting things about um, seeing these videos like this is that I only know of him outside of the classroom riding a bicycle in Harvard Square, going to the Harvard bookstore and telling me I should get John Rawls' book or I should get his book. Actually, he's telling me I should get buy his book on the nature of love, and lo and behold, I did, right? How, how many times is it in life that a person, any person, is just going to the bookstore or a Saturday afternoon, actually it's probably a Saturday afternoon, and you run into a, a, a well-known author who says, well, have you checked this out? I wrote this. It's just part of just, you know, it's like getting a bagel or, you know, just so it's a very it's actually kind of interesting to think about that. That can't be an everyday experience for everybody. Not everybody lives in a town where you have 200,000 professors or authors living around them or in the vicinity, you know, and so it was all the nature of that life and that that I had for, for 35 plus years, 30 30 to 35, 40 years. And so one of those people was Irving Saner. And now we're talking about his book. But I wanted to say, uh, talk a little bit about um, um, a formal shape or for, you know, form of thing. So this, this has a form. It's three episodes. And that means there's not going to be a fourth episode. So part of the meaning of what I'm doing at this very second is that there won't be a fourth and a fifth and it's gonna it's matching the shape of his text you know and then i decided it's going to be three when i was planning this series i said but here's here's what i'm going to do i'm going to make it three books but here's what i'm going to do for the audience you the viewer listener I'm not going to do a book. I'm not going to do an episode for each book. So it isn't going to be like number one, number two, and this would be we'd only do this one because it's three. Now, uh, uh-uh. uh in every single episode, I'm going to be nonlinear and go go from book to book. Um, I mean, not not in not of course in in a um, not in a um, random or meaningless fashion. There's a method to the madness, right, as they say. Um, but actually in this, in this episode, I am going to stick to book three for the most part, and I'm going to play some stuff like him talking. And so, um, but that's puppet. Anyhow, all that stuff I just said was how I planned this series. And if you think about it, like, uh, so that music I played up front, that's a theme I wrote. And I knew in that music, it's going to be a few measures. It's going to be simple. It's going to have a shape that's very familiar. Um, the word would be—it's actually a good word—is conventional. It's a convention. Um, it's a—you a, know—in terms of the, the the melodies, and it's going to be based on this and be, And actually, one of the one of the people um, who is watching the show said, "I like that music," and so I, and I said, "Well, it's based on such and such. It's not—you know—it's based on a few notes of a, of a well-known song." by Rogers and Hart uh, called I Could Write a Book. Um, but, of course, it's not taking that song. It's just, just a couple of notes, and I've made my up thing. And, of course, if I could write a book, this is a book launch. And so Frank Sinatra is saying, if they ask me, I could write a book. And um, <laughs> see, see that also you're at the mercy of platforms. This platform decides they yank something. They don't want you to pause too long. So let's go back to...
1: Well, in some way, that's, that's a sign They're we're very
0: supposed very to. That's a sign we're supposed to play Mr. Singer here. As, now, couple of remarks on Singer. This is Singer towards more or less the end of his life and teaching career. Um so this would be about oh seven, oh eight. The good people at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, preserve these which is remarkable, so we can watch, so we don't have to in, be enrolled at MIT. These students paid. you know, these are future, that person in that Scotland t-shirt or whatever in 07 probably is not working in some lab somewhere. Or, I don't know, but you know, my point is like, it's like this was preserved by MIT. And of course, part of my research was um, looking up as much as I could about Irving Saner. And I discovered something really interesting that was reported in his obituary which I'll get to towards the end of the show. It's a little, little surprise, little personal biography of Samir, not his war heroism in World War II and not, you know, Jewish immigration and the Jewish diaspora and all that. And of course, that's all part of it too, part of his life and coming to Massachusetts, but something, something you might not expect. And so it should be interesting. So let's hear Irving Senior talk. Now, this is a, the last class of his Nature of Love class. And so He has his own ideas. I share some of them. I don't share all of them, of course, but I find this very interesting because he's talking about the arts. So let's see. Time goes on.
1: Um, My thinking changes. I get new ideas. Uh, And uh, second, uh, because I don't believe that there is any single big idea about the nature of love that I am willing to espouse as.
0: All right. Sorry, he says, I don't think there is any single big idea about the nature of love, he's a pluralist. That's pluralism in a nutshell, I'm a pluralist, so I like that, that means that there's plural ways to love. my
1: philosophy, Uh, that's a view uh, that comes from the rationalist tradition in which life is thought to be a problem, and it's the job of the philosopher to deal with that problem at its deepest levels. I don't think life is a problem. And in terms of a deep level, that varies a great deal with the circumstances and with the individual. If somebody um, is dying of cancer, it's a deep problem to get the right medication to find something that will keep him alive or alive, which will vary from period to period. Um, And the more more, uh, difficult questions about the meaning of life or or what the meaning of death is will not have the same kind of immediate importance. So it's very hard to know just what's meant by the deeper problems that philosophers are supposed to deal with. In any event, uh, if you mean by that traditional problems about uh, the origin of being, the nature of being, um, I don't find those problems very interesting. Uh, For me, the question is the Socratic one, how to live, how to make sense of one's life, how to recognize the fact that there isn't any single solution because different people from different points of view have a different meaning in their lives and make sense in different ways. So that my kind of philosopher is more empirical, uh, less rationalistic, more pluralistic, In a sense, uh, he or she doesn't expect to find a single answer, and more investigatory. Also, in my particular case, the investigation proceeds on the nature of my own talents, which is mainly as an aesthetician, somebody who is sensitive to the immediacy of life, as particularly as represented by works of art. So for me, philosophy becomes a work of art.
0: So he just used a word related to our podcast. He says, "I am an aesthetician." So not only is he a philosopher, one of his fields of study is aesthetics. He's an actually technically an aesthetician. I thought that was interesting to hear him say that.
1: Expressing it's it's own, a thing uh, point of view, but in ways that will be meaningful to other people, and that will vary from stage to stage of one's artistic development as you all know about great artists, they're never the same at the end as they are at the beginning. It's not that they've gone any further, it's just that they have developed in that direction or if they weren't in that direction, it would be at the end. And some people will say, oh, what a pity His great period was this middle period and others will say, oh no, it's this last period. Think of the music of Beethoven, the last quartets uh, are considered to be the greatest, sets them written and also a level of profundity that Beethoven had never reached before. So much so that they're said to be more spiritual. Well, in some way they are more spiritual in a traditional way, but I think of them being more spiritual in my sense of the word spirit, which is that spirit is that part of nature which belongs to us as human beings aspiring to get beyond nature, aspiring to satisfy values and ideals that are very important to us as human beings. Where do those values and ideals come from? Not beyond nature, but rather from within our nature, in the pluralistic way that I keep talking about, uh, of each of us trying to make sense of the world uh, in a way that will matter to us, and if we're lucky, it will matter to other people. I see that in Beethoven. Um, ascribing all that to uh, the, the religion he held, which is um, very unclear, uh, he uh, wrote uh, religious traditional religious music, um, and uh, some of it uh, the church can accept as being authentic. But in his own feelings, what I find more representative is the sense of humanity that he expresses in this one opera and a great opera, one of the greatest operas, but the only one he wrote, uh, called Fidelio, yeah. which is all about uh, political prisoners being liberated. And it could have been written during the Second World War and uh, the pirates being overcome because of married love. Hmm. Uh, 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 Florestan is a political prisoner in a dungeon and his wife, uh, Leonora, uh, transvestites dressed herself up herself up as a boy in order to get a job in the jail, and finally she succeeded in finding him, Floristan, and liberating him from the jail keeper who was a tyrant uh, who was about to murder him. So that. It-
0: so I'm going to cut out there, even though that's a really if you folks don't know Fidelio, Beethoven, good stuff, of course, but he went into. Everything has a um, so in in a with a professor like Sainer. Everything has a meaning. It's not it's not um, always only random. I mean, there may be there might, there there is of necessity contingency in everything we all do. There's contingency in his in his course plan, but everything connects. He says, "Well, I'm a pluralist. This is what I feel." You know, there's there's many ways to love, and here's Beethoven, and people agree that Beethoven's quartets are amazing. But I, you know, we don't know. He says we don't know a lot about what Beethoven felt. Um, but what Beethoven did feel, he thankfully for the for all of Peduity and us, and he put it into his music. And so that's a, that's a, I thought that was really. And I'm turning this off here because I don't want to be when I'm talking and doing tech stuff. I don't want to have pictures and things kind of getting in the way uh, too much. Um, Again, I'm a one-man band. I'm trying to trying to do everything here. So I'm going to um, since this is the end, and I want to say a few comments about endings. It's um, part of the structure of this this particular series that um, has a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is a really um, in a lot of respects. In our current moment is an underrated way to do things. By which I mean, it's that people are interested in things other than that. People are interested in, in, in things that, that are open-ended and all that and don't have endings. But it's a good way to do things, not the only way, but it's underrated at our particular moment. And so um, I thought it'd be nice to do three books, three episodes. When we get to Hannah Arendt, which is gonna be our next book. And when I do my aesthetic series, that very much is more open ended, and it's 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 by design that it be open ended, and so it's kind of a little bit like a piece of music. You know, you have six minutes, you have thirteen minutes, and you know, and endings um, endings uh, can and should maybe perhaps make us sad, but they can also make us um, satisfied because you want to go on to other things, and you know, you want to conclude in that nature of life. You don't want to do the same thing all day, right? And so it's part of the – we'll create an order to the universe here. But anyway, I'm glad I would open this up. Now, his last chapter was called Toward a Modern Theory of Love. Now, going toward something is interesting. Like I said, I'm going toward – Across the room. Right? I'm gonna go over here. There's different ways of looking at that. Something as banal as that, right? I mean, you could say that well, you could say don't even discuss it, just go over there. That's that's a school of thought, right? But there's different attitudes you could take to it. You could you could sort of take the idea, I'm gonna I'm gonna go walk to the shutters over there to see what the weather is like. So today. It's 8 degrees right now. I think it's hovering around 8 and 12 here where I live. And the sun came out. And that sun may melt the ice. It may not. I don't know. And that's the conditions here. And so everything's frozen. And I just got a text from a driver, uh, a person who does transportation, said that they weren't able. They were snowed in because of a tree. And so they weren't able to meet me to go get the grocery or something. It's just this things in my life, you know, living in a very different, they're very radically different conditions that are different that is from an urban city with an enormous amount of people doing things like desalting roads and and all that. And so that that's not really here, right? So winter and certain kinds of weather means a different thing here than it would in Boston, Cambridge, Detroit, right? Anyhow, so if I'm gonna go over to the window um I could say, well, I'm gonna to go toward the window, right? He's gonna to go towards a theory of love. This is where he doesn't want to have closure. Really dislike that word, but I, I thought I would use it because it's it is in fashion. It's still I think a vogue word. And Brian Gun is where he 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 you know um we're going to have a different defi- we're going to say this is what love is a definition here's my definition he doesn't sing doesn't do it. he says toward let's see and so he he the last chapter of his of his book is an inventory i mean of all these things and they're things from the 70s and the 80s they're not things from the 90s and 2000s because of when it was written so you won't find, for example, Kate Mann in this book, right? Or you won't find, I don't know, Caitlin Flanagan in this book. You won't find contemporary pontificators and, and, and whatever, right? You won't, you won't. Um, but you will find Shallam Firestone and the dialectic of sex. So you might find Don, one of my favorite, all-time favorite books on sexuality, Donald Simons, uh, The Evolution of Is it Evolution of Human Sexuality, amazing book. I have a first edition over there. Bring out at some point. Anyhow, you won't. You, you might find that, or you might find you know stuff like that because of periodization. Because he's in a period, and this is the latest book that's getting reviewed. You know, yeah, in 1982, and it's a book by Margaret Mead. You know, or a book by Clifford Geertz about a Samoan people and what they do, and well, they do this, and they eat this kind of food, and. They make this way, not another way. And so that's kind of the, this book comes from that. But I feel that this book, even though his examples are dated in the sense that they're, they're, they're rooted in what was being published at the moment. It's let's see if it's still relevant. Let's see. Let's see. Right. I think it is. Um Ah, the chapter before his last chapter is called Scientific Intimations, and so he, this is the survey I was talking about. So, um, John Balby, the attachment guy, right, mentions him. Harlow, I'm just trying, Um, Melanie Klein, so actually, so there's a, I'm going to read a passage here that gets a little technical, and I I, I want to, before I read excuse me before I read, I'm going to mention something about who some of these folks are. Now, I've read all this stuff. I'm sorry I mean I, I have I'm sorry. I mean, I know I wish you know, look, I can't help it. I've read Karen Horney and melanie klein. i I could do I could do a seminar now on the differences between Melanie Klein and Karen Horney, two very famous psycho analysts. I'm not don't don't worry, I'm not do not worry i am not i not do that here, but I could. But he just mentioned these two people, right? And so it's kind of – because they wrote about – and that's just, in the, that's just in the realm of Freudian, just the Freudian field. And I pretty much – this gets even more just because I've read Melanie Klein and Karen Harney, but I, like, don't agree with them. Because in part, I don't really agree very much with Freud. I think – you know, I mentioned in an earlier episode that I really love his um, – Civilization is Discontents is the greatest – Essay book ever written. So you could say, well, Mitch, how can you disagree with somebody but praise so highly that text? Because that text is amazing. It's amazing. There's nothing else written in that year as good as that. But it has it has mistakes in it, it has blind spots, it has, you know, assumptions, prejudices, all of its author. And so the interesting thing is they sort of try to get past that or around that or beyond or above that and get to what's good in Freud's text, what's um, beautiful or what's interesting, right? Or what's stimulating, right? Or because that's the nature of value, right? at least in terms of this context, where we look for what is positive or valuable, even in things that at the end of the day, we can't fully sign on with, right? So, and that's that subtlety that I wanted. So anyhow, it's just one example. Um, Klein, should I do the Klein? I don't know. Here we go, this is a typical passage. The dialectical tensions between hate and love, guilt and reparation, continue throughout an individual's development. But their operation alters as new situations occur and new faculties become available. Melanie Klein sees the capacity for identification with another person as crucial in the formation of love that is both, these are her quotes, real and strong, unquote. Using words that are reminiscent of Ficino and Kant, when they talk about reciprocal love, Klein remarks, quote, since in being identified with other people, we share as it were the help or satisfaction afforded to them by ourselves, we gain in one way what we have sacrificed in another. In order to act lovingly towards others, Klein states, we must first put ourselves in their place. This happens through identification, and that makes sense psychologically because it gives us a means of restoring to ourselves the benefits we have accorded those with whom we identify. We then play the part of the good parent that we always desired when we were children, as well as the part of the good child that we originally hoped to be ourselves. See, it would be God. Like most psychiatric theorists, Melanie Klein associates the capacity for mature love with the ability to emancipate oneself from infantile dependence, so that's just a little taste of Sainer talking about Melanie Klein. As it so happens, uh, twenty-five years ago, I briefly dated a Kleinian psychoanalyst. She was from Brazil, and so we would have, you know, we just we weren't just romantic couple. We also had these very intense intellectual conversations about Klein, you know, and she used to tease me a little bit because she sensed I was, you know, I wasn't really a Kleinian, you know, I was into, she said, Mitch, you're into all that weird stuff. You like Jacques Lacan and those French people and you're into that weird stuff. She used to say to me, I I like my Klein. So, you know, it's kind of funny. One of the interesting things about that passage I just read is that he's dealing with a psycho- psychoanalyst and psychoanalytic theorist. But when you're dealing with folks like that, whatever else we might say about them, good, bad, indifferent, agree, disagree, whatever, it's still part of the humanities. So there's a sense in which Klein is talking about dependence and empathy and putting yourself in other people's people's shoes. She's in the same territory as movies, books, TV novelists, so even though it's under a chapter called scientific, labeled scientific, it's still hum, hum, humane and humanist. It's part of kind of all this stuff. The music, it's it's totally related. There are other cats, however, and he he sort of criticizes them a little bit in this book, who are totally laboratory science, and that's all they are, or they're reductionist, or they're kind of. In the, he gets into some of that, so it's interesting. Contrast that with the Melanie Klein. Um, We're over we here. Here's a passage falling in love is volcanic. That's Singer. Okay. It is a phenomenon of great emotional stress. It may easily approach a state of obsessional fixation upon another person, often causing disruption in one's prior system of values. It is a common occurrence in adolescence because that is a time not only of erotic awakening, but also evaluational questioning. So he's saying there are very obvious things, right, about sort of periods of life, time, you know, um, stages of life, right, say adolescence. And falling in love is volcanic. He's choosing very familiar language because he's writing this book for you and and, and us. He's, he's writing this book for people. It's not, you know, he's very, it's very important to him when he wrote these three volumes to be accessible and to communicate in clear language. And that's not to say that there aren't difficult things. Klein is difficult and he talks about, you know, difficult issues and matters. By difficult I don't mean a negative emotional difficulty. I mean possibly sometimes hard to comprehend kind of difficulty, right? But he always, you know, that, that's his, that's his, um, that's his, that's his, you know, what he's doing. Um, I'm just trying to find one of these sort of him talking about one of the scientists because it's funny. Here we go. The theories articulated by Lawrence, that's Conrad Lawrence, the Darwin, one of the Darwin theorists. Eve Istvedel, as well as those of Harlow and John Balby, occur within the framework of Darwinian approaches to social bonding. The same applies to recent social biologists such as Edward O. Wilson and Robert Trivers. And they're thinking about altruism These two confront confront what seems to be a paradox in evolutionary doctrine. Most scientists assume that natural selection occurs through the development of behavior that enables an organism to survive long enough to reproduce. But in the process of performing self-sacrificial acts, which exist in many social species, individuals put themselves at a reproductive disadvantage and sometimes lose their lives how then can this behavior be explained by these darwinists and so that's an you know that's a common um that's a common um question i mean only if you're but only if you're in that only in that field you know i'm not in that field i mean i've read this stuff but i'm not you know i'm not a card carrying um any of this stuff believe it. i'm i'm a, if i'm anything i'm an this guy here, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm interested in Beethoven's late quartets more, you know, shall we say. But it is interesting, you know, and of course a lot of it um it's, uh, altruism, he talks about dealing with acts that unite individuals who are biologically related to each other, you know, family, um, the altruism of, of maternal altruism and all these things and he says here, social biology is still a young science, and we should not prejudge its future capacity capacity to yield fruitful insights about love. So. At the outset, we must recognize how loosely the term romantic love has been used in many recent books. When contemporary critics vilify romantic love, treating it as a fraud or emotional disease, the object of their attack is generally conditioned that many romantics would have found quite remote from anything they wish to recommend. So he's saying that there's a a confusion that you know, there's a slew of books that came out in 1982. I guess that were more of, shall we say, the realist slash cynical mode. And I don't mean good cynicism like Diogenes, like the ancient philosophic cynics. I mean cynical and in a you know as a negative characteristic of people, the way it's used today by commonly, right? I'm like don't be cynical. Um, that they're really attacking something. They're attacking something that was not – you could say, well, that's not what I – I'm Shelley. I did not intend that. When, I, when I'm writing in 1870 and I'm she, Shelley, or if I'm 50 and these different these, – these thinkers, you know, I did – remember I did that book on the Germans, the, uh, the, the Romantic Rebels book, I think, last year. Um, a lot of those kind of folks, Schiller, you know, when those folks were writing, they would say, well, we don't really mean what you mean by romance or love. We mean something different. You mean something good that is solid, that is good, you know. Don't, 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 you know. This is a a common thing. And it very much connects to the theme of our very podcast. Because I'm actually writing a blog post now about how. So, um, you know, there's so many examples. So I was was once having dinner with a film director. I'm not going to mention any names here, film director and – and a really good film director, really good, like like great, I want to say, like made a film I thought was terrific. And this dude basically disparaged every film that I liked that came out that year, disparaged all of them. He's like, oh, that's, I don't like that. And what what I really, lo- and that was the, the roots of this podcast, because I was trying to understand, well, this person's really intelligent, they made a great film, but they don't like anybody. Else, any of these other things. And so what I, you know, the, conclu- the the temporary provisional, I guess that's a conclusion. What I came up with is that these, these it's, it's the question of plurality and diversity. This film director wanted to see certain things in a movie. And that means he doesn't wanna see those other things in a movie. I want a movie to be XY. I want a movie to be this. Let's say you're, you know, you're let's say um, I mean the examples are are, 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 are are so many. It's just the same way with like literature, a book, you know. I could I could pick a book, so give you a sneak preview of the haunter rant. So pick up the haunter rant. Where are we here? She opens up The Life of the Mind, 1972, she's about to pass in a few, in a year or so, this is her last, but she, you know, the first thing Hannah Arendt does as an author is she disarms everybody and everything, and she, she interjects a little humility, so she says, the title I have given to this lecture series, The Life of the Mind, sounds pretentious. And to talk about thinking seems to me so presumptuous that I feel I should start less with an apology than with a justification. An interesting way to start. What disturbs me is that I try my hand at it, for I have neither claim nor ambition to be a philosopher or be numbered among what Kant not without irony, called professional thinkers. See, so there's like double irony, triple, isn't is funny. So she's saying, the question then is, should I not have left these problems in the hands of the experts? So she says, I'm not an expert, but then she went on to condemn the experts or invoke a, a philosopher who was critical of merely career or professional philosophers. It's a little bit of pejorative. So she's saying, She's saying on the one hand, I'm not as good as, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not um, so expert or so good as to be a philosopher, but then goes to say, well, who wants to be, right, if it's those folks over there, I don't want to association associate with them. But this is a common theme in Hannah Arendt. She over and over again said, not in an evaluative sense, but in a tax, taxonomic descriptive says, I am not a philosopher. So then the question becomes: Well, what was she? Was she a political philosopher, which is distinct from philosophy, and on and on. And so this is these are this gets into a realm of. Um, in her case, she's very careful about language, and she's she's a German American, and so she's thinking in, both in German and in English at one at the same time, because she was so brilliant that way. She actually fought in both, and her mind was was certainly better than my mind and, and a lot of folks. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about is, the, you know, she opens up her book. This sounds pretentious. So she's already anticipating. Don't worry. I called this life of the mind, but it's not going to be that kind of book. Life of the mind that you might really hate this. You know, just bear with me. This might be a good life of the mind. It might be a, an unpretentious life of the mind. So that's just an example, you know, of a. Next book I'm going to do, just to, but to kind of relate to back to, to Singer. Singer surveys all these people, right? Singer, Singer. You know, this might irritate people about Singer. I can imagine somebody who's Wants to get at the truth, you know, and saying, "Come on, Irv, you know, what are you going?" So, so let me let me let me play somebody who doesn't. So, being in love may not may not endure. It could be a temporary temporary union, like falling in love, that disappears when the difficulties of living together become insurmountable. The mere passage of time cannot change being in love into staying in love. Though sexual demands moderate as people get older, emotional maturity does not assure the ability to stay in love. So he's saying you could be mature and intelligent, and that won't be sufficient for you to actually stay in love. He's saying that that's maybe even that it's not. It might not might not be enough. Right? Interesting. On the contrary, the aging process often leads to separation a search for love elsewhere, or even a feeling that interpersonal love is futile. Now, I should say he's writing this as a a guy who lived with the same woman for like 50, 60 years. So he's in a way, he's not talking about himself, which is interesting. So it's like interesting, this author is like leaving himself behind and saying, well, things could have gone south for me. He's imagining this, which is interesting, right? So to me, to even do that in a text is a sign of, of to me, a better writer, actually. Because he's saying, I'm going to leave myself aside. I'm this 60-year-old man living in... Brook- I don't know where he lived in Massachusetts, Cambridge, Mass. Um, with the same woman. Has grand- He's a grandfather. In this series, he says, I've become a grandfather for the first time. He talks about in this video. And how he talks about how beautiful it is and how it changes his perspective. Really... I wish I could play all of this, but you know it's a lot, lot there. Any event, um, he's saying it might not work out, but I can imagine an interlocutor who's not so sympathetic to saying saying, "Hey, Irv, I want to know how to love properly. Tell me." That would be a very different kind of book. I mean, I purposely chose these books precisely because they are not those kinds of books. And yeah. This kind of very what I call a survey, the landscape approach. Melanie Klein, Robert Trivers, amazing Darwinian, Robert Trevers work on. I'm, I'm confusing which like which scientists work with the Black Panthers. One of the Darwinian wasn't Trevers, Trivers' work was. Cooperation, anyhow, that's a long they, again. these, You know, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, scientists were interesting people. They would they would collaborate with Elwich Cleaver on a paper or something. I don't know. These things did happen, you know, interesting, interesting sort of political and science all mixed together. I didn't mean to go on a tangent, but I'm just I'm just I'm just thinking um uh when you read a text like this Singer book, I submit that you actually just might get more advice and and clear clear, direct advice than in many texts that are written by psych- best-selling psychologists to improve your life. And the reason why I say that, why I submit that as a, as a, as a um, working hypothesis is that I've read these three books and you know he discusses Proust and Shakespeare in great detail And it's quite possible that Proust and Shakespeare and Beethoven or whatever else you want to talk about might really help you actually if read thoroughly, comprehensively and with utmost curiosity and sensitivity and subtlety and nuance. With those things in the forefront, you experience those folks like Bruce and Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera. It might be even better than the book that tells you what love is, flat out. And in a way, in these three bottoms, he does tell you what love, loves are. He says these are different kinds of love. You know, and he gets goes into great detail. I can't get into all this now. Partly because I don't have the energy for it, because of the weather, partly, I don't know. Because as sad as I am to see this book go, I'm getting ready for Hannah Arendt, our next author. I'm excited about that. And partly because I want to play a clip from this movie, right? And I have to gear up for that. I have to get that ready. Um, so that's the nature of love. And this is the modern world we've been talking about with all the scientists and the psychoanalysts. Um Want to see what the last thing he writes in this book? Let's see what it is. Last paragraph. See, Bertrand Russell said, the good life is one inspired by love and guided by knowledge. What the world needs now is not only love, but also greater knowledge about the nature of love in all of its complexity. I like that. So that's Singer's. So I thought I would, I, I said I would say something about Irving Singer's personal life and I have to look here up this obituary. Um, Here we go, good stuff. Irving Singer, MIT professor who wrote *The Nature of Love*, dies at eighty-nine, February fifteenth. So Irving Singer died on Valentine's Day. I'm just gonna just let's sit with that for a little bit.
1: <laughs> it says here February yeah February February fifteenth.
0: 2015, not so long ago. You know why he wrote this book? There's only one reason, and it start the obituary. Wonderful Sam Roberts uh, says here. You ready for this? Stunned by family members urging him to be more affectionate. Irving Singer, a philosophy professor, spent years researching and writing a 1,300 page, three volume examination of the subject titled The Nature of Love. Irving Singer, this is a quote from Singer himself this, like so many philosophical works, began as an attempt to understand my own inadequacies. He, he told the New York Times in 1987. Everyone in my family persuaded me that I ought to be more loving, which troubled me. So like most philosophers, I dealt with the criticism by constructing a theory and a philosophy which enabled me to dismiss their ideas, unquote. Uh, 65 years, he taught 55 years. Uh, Amazing, right? I thought you would like that little, that little, um, that little, one um... by the way, Sina wrote in bed and he had a system set up kind of a little bit like how Proust, Marcel Proust wrote in bed. I think his wife, and I think his wife would, um, his wife would, I guess, read passages to him of something, some idea she had and they would, and he would correct the text and, you know, and, Interesting. I only know the guy on a bicycle. So again, people have different facets. They may be in bed, they may be on a bicycle, going to the bookstore. Um, These are all the different, the different, different things. So I thought that would be interesting to see a February fifteenth obituary for, um, for, for um, Irving Singer, right? And um, his his nature of love. So let me cue up this clip from a movie. And again, it's not a, it's not a, What have we got here? Stuff. Dealing with the world, dealing with platforms. Says Mitch, what have we got? What have we got? All right, stuff. Here we go. Wendy and Lucy. Should I pause it? I
1: know,
0: I know. All right. This is an older movie from Kelly Reichardt, director, writer. This is her, one of her favorite actors, Michelle Williams. Um, and again, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story even though it's quite simple, but this is about love between human and animal, this film. It's about other things as well, it's not only about that, it's about economic injustice and about poverty too. And and, and But it's also about love between uh, her and this animal. And this is not the exact end of the film, but this is when she's reunited because she had been, because of her own travails and economic hardship was separated. From, no, I, uh, that. I want to make sure, yeah, she hasn't seen her dog in many days, and she's been searching for her dog, and um, this is kind of, um, there we go. Uh.
1: Lou Hey. Hey Lou. Do you miss me? Huh? Do you miss me? Huh? Do you miss me? Huh? Come here, Lou. Come here, do you miss me? I'm sorry. come here. Huh? I know. I know. Come on, Lou, don't be mad. Go get it. Good girl. You're such a good catcher, huh? Drop it. You're such a good dog. Go get it, Lou. Go get that stick. Good dog. You're the best catcher drop it Lou 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 give me that stick give me that stick Lou give me that stick drop it good dog good girl huh so nice here Lou Man seems so nice. So, oh. yeah, nice yard. I'm sorry, Lou.
0: Um that's a that's a that's a of course a difficult moment. Um this is all fair use. I mean this is uh this is a, a clip from a film and this is all educational. It's 1976 Copyright Act. I'm trying to do this from memory of them um, for criticism and commentary and education and edification. Not nothing financial. And so I thought I would play this. Um, Partly, I mean, so this is an interesting thing. So this person's reunited with her loved one, her dog. And that's the direct film director. That's Kelly Reichardt's dog, by the way, at that time. And so, you know, this camera, the scene goes on and you see she's throwing this stick to this dog. playing catch and but then you see a change come over her when it's, you know sort of um, very difficult realizations play out in the actor's face. Camera stays on her face and you see this thing. That's what a work of art is that's what a work of art does is present things like that to the world. Her situation as a character presents it to the world. Her relationship with that dog to the world, it's released into the world. This played in theaters or on televisions, right? And we have to deal with that in some way. You know. And we might say, well, that's like me, or I'm glad I'm not in that situation, or or any any hundreds of things that we could feel. And you know, it could be something like this, or it could be abstract music, abstract sound rather than literal people or in the in a field or a dog. Or it could be words on a page like this book. Or the Hannah Arendt we're going to do in Feb, Starting in February Or it could be discovery that every singer's obituary was on The February 15th And he passed, you know, then, right Or that, you know, his his Wife thought he should have been more Touchy-feeling And affectionate And that's why he wrote this 18th. I just can't get over that I just think that's, fun. that's funny in a way Um It's just a different way of being in the world that he had, you know. It just wasn't a way that, you know, his way, his family was like, come on. It's interesting, right? Well, I hope you have a good rest of the Saturday. I look forward to um Mark Anthony Mendez's episode, which will come out in February. Right now, we're um have the Lawn 70s podcast guys, Alex and Matt, if you tune into them that's quite a doozy I'm very very happy with that episode and I'm gonna do some pop-ups and some surprises and all sorts of things coming up. So I hope uh, you and have a decent weekend a great weekend and be safe and and don't let this inclement weather if it is inclement where you are um, uh, keep you locked in the house for too long or wherever you are. but thank you and I uh, look forward to coming back and with some more books and more music. All right.